All right. Again, good morning, everyone. Thanks for being here. Thanks for making this a priority in your day. I know you could have sat home and in your pajamas and watch this online, but I, it really is, I, I love Sundays for this purpose and getting to see everybody face to face and spend this time together. We are in the fourth chapter of the book of Galatians. This is actually the 10th message in the book of Galatians. And we're going to finish chapter four today and actually just to begin a little bit of chapter five. And what Paul is doing in this section, really the book of Galatians can be broken up into three parts, chapters one and two, three and four, five and six. And what Paul is doing here is he's finishing this, this argument, he's making his case against this group of Jewish, Jewish believers from Jerusalem, we call the Judaizers. And what they've done is they've gone into this area of Galatia where these are primarily new, newer churches and Gentile, non-Jewish churches. They're in areas that Paul did uh, three missionary journeys through, and they were coming in and, and bringing this idea that there was more to being a part of God's family than just faith in Christ. And Paul is, is really rebuffing that, saying, no, this is, this is not the true gospel that you first received. He does that really in chapters 1 and 2 by saying, look, I didn't get the message that I gave to you from Jerusalem where these other guys were coming from. I didn't get it from anywhere. I got it straight from God himself. And so it's the pure gospel. Don't distort it or don't let anybody else distort it in any other way. Chapters three and four, he makes his argument against this idea that following certain uh, Jewish religious cultural things that are found in the Torah were what made you part of God's family. And then in chapters 5 and 6, he talks about what it looks like when we truly embrace our freedom in Christ and what the Spirit does through our lives through that. And so we'll spend the next couple weeks looking at that when, when uh, yeah, in the next couple of weeks. But ultimately, Paul is saying, look, the foundation of your relationship with God is in Christ. Don't add anything to that. See, when we do that, when we add this idea of certain behaviors are, make us more acceptable to God, and in this case, the, the, the group of Judaizers was relying on specific customs in the Torah and the teaching, then one of the things that can happen to us is we can actually become very concerned with checking the boxes and going through the motions. It doesn't happen for everybody, but it is a danger. And we can have this external position that we put forward, which is actually removed from why we're doing those things, why we're meant to have a relationship with God that leads to those, those things. And that, that can be a danger. It, it, it turns us into, you know, generally moralistic people who look down on others, and, it, and it, it can remove us from that relationship with God, which essentially, when you look back through the scriptures, this is what you see. God is a very relational God, and his desire is to have a faithful, genuine relationship with his people. It's the picture that we have all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. God walked in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, and you see that at the very end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, where God is with his people and we are with him. It's this picture of perfect relationship. So, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to chapter 4, verse 21. We'll start we'll read through the first verse of chapter 5. Remember, Chapters and verses were put in later. This is not in the original text. And sometimes, you know, they're not quite sure where to, to um, end these. And the very first verse of chapter 5 actually is finishing the argument that Paul makes in chapter 4. That's why I've included it in here. So, 
have it in your notes, and I'll have it on the screen as well. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. He's, he's quoting Isaiah 54 right there. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of a promise. And at that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. And he's quoting Genesis 21 right there, which we'll look at a little bit later. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Father, it is a gift to be here this morning and to share in reading your word together. So, Lord, I pray in a passage like this that uh, can be difficult to comprehend for us today, I, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would meet each one of us where we're at and speak to us. Anytime I'm up here, I have no control, Father, what people take away from what you have given me to say. And this is especially true today. And so I just pray, Father, that you would be glorified, that you would be honored, that we would be drawn to you through your word. And we would recognize what Paul is saying to us about what it means to be a part of your family and the responsibility that comes with being a part of your family and the gift that it truly is. So, Lord, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it all these years for us. May you be honored and glorified today. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Now, I, I, I tell you what, I, I really do enjoy studying the Bible. I, I was honestly, I feel sometimes guilty about how much time I get to study it during the, during the week to get to share on Sunday. And I, I love reading other people who've dedicated their lives to studying the scriptures. And it is a rare occasion when I come to a passage where there are so many differing opinions on what a text means than I have with this one this week. It has been a challenge, to say the least. And, and I say this because, look, the Bible is not a cipher. It's not something that has these secret hidden meanings that only if you have the decoder ring that you can figure out. That's not how the Bible is written. As a matter of fact, even in the parables that Jesus taught where his disciples said, 
we don't understand what you're talking about. Jesus would go on to explain to them what he meant. See, a lot of the Bible is meant for us, and there are different genres of writing. There's poetry and narrative and history and and different things in there, so we're meant to take them in different ways, but it can be a challenge. I understand for us today, it can be a challenge to read because there are some barriers between us and the original authors and the people that, that, that they were writing to. I mean, this is like, how many of you have sat in a room and tried to figure out what's happening on the other side of the phone conversation when you can only hear one side? Well, that's kind of like working through these letters. A lot of times we don't have the other side and that could present a challenge. Also, the few thousands of years in culture gap present a challenge. I, I was thinking about this, and just to put that in perspective, I, I, I think if you took someone from 20 years ago and fast-forwarded them to today, they would be lost just 20 years ago. They would be like, what are you guys talking about? Now, think about a couple thousand years ago, and not just that, but language and, and all of that, and it presents a challenge for us. I, I have read commentaries on this passage this week from the 4th century, the 5th century, the 16th century, the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries. And I'll tell you, there is not a simple consensus on what Paul is talking about because he does a couple of things here he doesn't do anywhere else. When he refers to Jerusalem as our mother from above, it's the only time he does that. And it's the only time that he uses Sarah, Hagar, and Abraham in an example, in an illustration like this. I mean, he talks about them a lot, but never in this way outside of this book. And I tell you, I was, I, God is very gracious, and he, he reminded me of something that the Apostle Peter said in his second letter. He said, our dear brother Paul, he also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort. And I'll tell you what, if those words have not been on my heart this whole week, I don't want to be an ignorant and unstable person who distorts what Paul is trying to say here. And I have been in, gosh, one of the most humble weeks of my life in prayer and just everything going on in in our town. And just, it's been a very humbling week for me, to say the least. But one of the things that God has really reminded me of in coming to this passage is I, I have a tendency, I think we all at times do this, have a tendency to treat the Bible like a a reference book. Like I have a problem with this in my life and so let's turn to page 512 and let's get all the answers that are gonna address that problem. And and sometimes I I expect that on Sundays, like I I want three simple steps for me to take from this that I can walk out of here on Monday and apply them to my lives. And the Bible is not written like that. It is written as meditation literature. As I said before, there's, there's poetry, there's narrative, there's historical, there's metaphorical, there's all of these different aspects that are going on in the scriptures. And you would never open a poetry book and say, this is going to help me fix my car. 
But we make that, I make that mistake with the Bible sometimes. And instead of just reading it and rereading it and allowing God's spirit to speak to me at the times that he needs to, because I've become so saturated with his word that it becomes a part of who I am. See, that's different than just coming to it when I need something from it. And so when we read this text today, I I think that this is probably what a number of us are going to walk away with. God is going to work through this text in our lives, maybe not right now, maybe not tomorrow, maybe a week from today. Who, Who knows? But the point is coming to God's word and allowing it to just saturate and knowing it's okay if I don't just walk away with three easy action steps because that's not how we're intended to approach the scriptures. Sometimes it's just not that simple. Sometimes it is. Sometimes, hey, don't do that. That's okay. But that's not the entirety of the scriptures. That's why I just wanted to say that up front because there are interpretations of this passage that we are not going to cover today and, and there's good arguments for some of them. What we are going to do is focus on what I think is the underlying point that Paul is trying to make to the Galatians that is also applicable to us. And so we're going to look at really this illustration that Paul contrasts Sarah and Hagar and their two families. And they're also going to look at how Paul talks about the difference between slavery and freedom as exemplified in these two family lines. So we'll start here with Hagar in Sarah. So Paul, Paul uses this illustration really to highlight the characteristics of both families to make the point against what these Judaizers from Jerusalem were trying to bring into the Galatian church, that you could add to what was necessary to become a part of God's family other than faith in Christ. And I tell you what, I feel like I talk about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar a lot, but, but it, they are a central to the history of the Jewish people in, in how this is presented. So it's why we spent so much time in the book of Exodus, going back to the establishment. Now that was really with Moses at Mount Sinai when the nation of Israel became finalized. But that actually, that establishment of the nation of Israel was a promise that goes all the way back to, to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And God also promised Abraham that he would have this family that was as numerous as the stars are in the sky. But Sarah has not been able to get pregnant, and the two of them are well advanced in years. They are in beyond, they are in beyond retirement age. And they, they wait, look, they wait 10 years after God gave Abraham this promise, and they still don't have any children. They don't have a son. So what do they do? They decide to take matters into their own hands. And Sarah says, I, I, I need you to take one of my Egyptian servants, Hagar, and she will be a surrogate mother for us, so to speak, a wife to him, and we can have a child through her. And on its surface, you think, gosh, I mean, that's something we still do today. If you have people who are infertile, there are surrogate parents who, who will carry children for a family who can't have one. But it, this, you just write, you read that, and you know this is not going to end well. This, this is a mess. And I, don't, and look, I don't think we can even pin that on Sarah because where's Abraham in this? He could say no, but he doesn't. And so Hagar 
gets pregnant from Abraham, and that's how Ishmael is born. But Ishmael is not the son that God promised. He's the result of Sarah and Abraham's, their their self-effort, their self-will. So when Sarah finally does get pregnant, and by the way, this is likely in her 90s, there's no doubt that this child is the promise of God. Isaac's name literally means laughter, which is what Sarah did when she heard the angel of the Lord say, Sarah's going to become pregnant in her old age. And she just, she laughs about it. But essentially what Abraham and Sarah are doing is saying, you know, this promise of God is not going to come true unless we take matters into our own hands. This is just what we have to do so that God's promise can come true. And that's how they justify their behavior. But that's not, that's not faith. That's what the Apostle Paul calls acting in the flesh. It's when we decide that we will determine what needs to happen and we do it on our own apart from what God has promised us. And look, we're all guilty of it. It, it, You look through the New Testament and you read Paul's letters, he uses that phrase in the flesh at least 40 times. So it was a problem back then and it's most definitely still something we deal with today. So Ishmael, he's the result of Abraham and Sarah's effort apart from God. And and Isaac is a gift. He's the result of God's promise. And Paul is saying is that the two women here represent two different paths. One represents taking things on our own terms. That's Hagar and Ishmael. And the other is what it looks like to receive the gift that only comes from God in his timing and in his purpose. And that's Isaac and Sarah. And so without going back and rereading everything that Paul says here, here here's a summary of his description of the two families. He says, Hagar, she represents the slave. She will be the mother of the Arabian people who will be in slavery. Hagar produces Ishmael according to the flesh, meaning by their own effort. She represents the present Jerusalem. This is, God has left Jerusalem. Jerusalem at this point. He's not in the temple, and the people are still trying to go through the motions like he, like he is. So going back to that idea of the Judaizers, this is walking back through those things that are not going to be relevant for our relationship with God today. Hagar represents the persecutor. There's language in here, and we're not, we're not, we don't know what it is, but something happens between Ishmael and Isaac, and Sarah is not happy about it at all. So Isaac becomes persecuted, Hagar, Ishmael is the persecutor. And then Hagar represents those who will not inherit. And why? Because when you look to the other side, what you start to see is you see language of family. Those who inherit are in the family. Those who do not inherit are not a part of the family. Sarah represents those who are free and primarily because through her is going to come the one who brings ultimate freedom to all people and that's Christ. It's not even about Sarah's faithfulness or unfaithfulness. It's about God's faithfulness to work through broken people including Sarah to bring freedom even to those who make a mess of things because Isaac is through the promise of God. Not our own self-effort, but through God's promise. She represents the Jerusalem above, the new creation in God. 
Isaac represents those who are persecuted. As Paul said, some, that's still happening today to those who are trying to, to follow Christ. They're being persecuted by people who, who don't want anything to do with it. And Sarah represents those who will inherit the kingdom. They will inherit the blessings, the freedom of God because they are a part of the family. And so to explain this, really hash this out, I think we can start here, this idea of slavery versus freedom. And I know if you were to ask, well, which would you prefer? It's a silly question. But then when you look at our decisions, and they tend to not be as simple. Because it's very easy for us to get these things mixed up and, and, and think slavery is actually freedom, and freedom is slavery. It happens all the time. Our culture def defines freedom today as the ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want. In every aspect of your lives. And they might add, you know, so long as you're not hurting anybody else. But the scriptures actually call that type of behavior being a slave. See, if, if you are, whatever your emotions, whatever your actions, whatever your desires tell you to do, you do it. You are not actually the one who's determining your actions. You're, you're responding to some external feelings or emotions in you, and that is the behavior of a slave. In, uh, in Peter's second letter, he talks about it this way, speaking about false teachers. He says, these people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Those are not welcome. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. It's why the Apostle Paul would say, you know, all things are permissible. Not all things are beneficial, but I will be mastered by nothing outside of Christ. If emotion and desires control our behavior... God's word says that is what it looks like to be a slave. Because true freedom always operates within boundaries that make that freedom both possible and make it good. And I'll give you a couple examples here. Rhetorical question. You don't have to answer this. But you think, think to yourself, are fish in the ocean free? They are so long as they're underwater. But if you say, you know what, that tyrannical, repressive ocean has forced those fish to be under there, and I'm going to liberate them, pull them out of the water and let them breathe air like the rest of us. See, that's not freedom. That's sushi. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have said that. Nobody's going to hear a word I say after this. Everyone's just going to be... It was me thinking, are we getting sushi after this? I'm hungry. I'll give you another example. Um, music. One of the things I love about music is there is an endless creativity that can be expressed in, in music. But music operates within boundaries. It sounds the best within the boundaries of its keys, of its time signatures, and its structure. Otherwise, it's just noise. See, the amazing thing about music is you don't have to be a musician to recognize that. If you hear music that is out of key and out of time, it does not sound good. Every, everybody knows that. When was the last time 
you sat through a karaoke night. <laughs> this will remind you when things sound good and people sing together and where people are exercising music in a way it was never intended to be used. You know, one of the things I was talking about, someone after for service about this, and you know, I don't care if it's music that is worship and dedicated to the Lord or you're talking about Vivaldi. It, it, music is something God created to bless us. And that whether or not people give credit to him, they are merely a conduit of that gift. And so we can benefit from, I, I listen to certain, you know, Vivaldi Four Seasons is one of my favorite when I study, just because it's, it's beautiful, it sounds just amazing, and there, there are no words, so I don't have to get caught up on what's being said, and I can study, but it just allows me to see, like, isn't this amazing that God put this structure together? See, because if you just go start playing things out of place, it doesn't work. I took a guitar class at the community colleges a number of years ago, and one of the things the teacher asked us all in the class at the very beginning, he said, what do you want to get out of the class? And I said, I want to learn how to play the good notes and avoid the bad notes. And he said, there are no bad notes. There are just notes out of order. See, it's a, a reminder that, that music has a structure that within it, gives us almost ultimate freedom, and it's good. See, that's, that's for, our, for our good, but true freedom, just like music, always operates within boundaries, which is why Paul tells the Galatians, look, your true freedom is found in Christ. Your relationship with God is not defined by any of the Jewish customs that we used to follow. So you've been adopted into God's family through Jesus and you're not supposed to go back to the way that it was before him. And that is not just true for the Galatians, but it's for us as well. Anything that we found our identity, our purpose, and our meaning before we came to Christ is something we do not go back to. We, we move forward. As new creations, Jesus Christ is the first fruits of new creation, and in him so are we. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians and in Galatians. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. In Galatians chapter 6, he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything in our position before God. What counts is the new creation. See, when Paul compares these two families in Hagar and Sarah, he's trying to make this point. If you choose to use God's way of determining whether or not you are a part of his family, you are missing the point. As a matter of fact, what you're doing is you are rejecting the gift of salvation in Christ that God has given us. You are essentially saying Christ isn't enough. The Messiah didn't have to die. There are other ways. We can do it on our own. See, the Torah, the teaching, the law of God, it's not bad. It never was. Paul says it was, a, it was a guardian to guide us until Christ came. John Piper, the pastor, uh, commentary on this says, why aren't the Ishmael types free? They're not free because they lack the desire to rest in God's promises. 
It's not that they desire to reject God. That's important. It's not that they just want to outright reject God. They simply want him on their own terms. And unfortunately, when we do that, we are rejecting God. We, I, I've talked about this so many times. But when people say, well, this, the Jesus that I know looks like this, they're usually describing someone who looks a lot like them, not who we find in the scriptures. And see, if we don't trust, if we don't have faith that God has our best interest in mind, then we will be tempted to do exactly what Abraham and Sarah did, which was take matters into their own hands. I think Paul makes this point well in verses 21 and 30. He says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what it says? You can't do everything it says. Why would you want to put yourself underneath that? He continues, what, what do the scriptures say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. You know, one of the ironic things about this, when Paul is addressing these Judaizers from Jerusalem, they always saw themselves as children of Abraham. And what Paul is doing right here is an underhanded slight in saying, you are actually acting like children of Hagar, not Abraham. Because you are choosing not to inherit, as what happens in the family, the blessings and freedom that come in Christ. Instead, you want to go back to following all of these rules. And I'll tell you what, that leads to slavery. That second line, Paul quotes Genesis 21, and this is really a, a, a heartbreaking part of the story. It's where Hagar has, uh, sorry, Sarah has Hagar and Ishmael basically exiled from Abraham's family. I mean, it's a death sentence. She's sending them out into the desert. And it's partly tragic because you think about, well, what did Hagar do to be put in this position other than to submit to Abraham and Sarah? So there's this tension between Sarah and, and Hagar, and there's tension between Isaac and Ishmael, and ultimately it, it, it turns into this mess, and Sarah ends up sending them both out. I'll tell you what, if you ever hear anyone say the Bible doesn't speak out against polygamy, they have not read this story or any story that deals with polygamy. They all end in disaster. See, and again, if we treat the Bible like a reference book and we're looking for polygamy that says, not good, you're not going to find it. What you are going to find is a bunch of stories where polygamy is not good. But I don't, want to, I don't want to end the story of Hagar and Ishmael there because God is so gracious. And the story continues here in verse 14 of Genesis 21. It says, Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. I mean, can you imagine? She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba, where the water in the, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as he sat there, she began, as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and an angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. 
I just love it when God's angels say this. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And all of this finishes with these amazing words. God was with the boy as he grew up. See, even in the midst of the mess that has been created here, God, his faithfulness does not abandon even those that are caught in the middle. And, and, and Hagar and Ishmael are cared for in the same way that God's going to continue to care for Isaac and his messed up family that's going to come. So what, what is it that I think we can learn from all of this? I, I, I think simply it's, it's this. Paul is telling the Galatians, live as a child of the promise. Re- receive from God. Don't try and take for yourself. L- live as though God's promises were true. And, and whatever timing they happen it, it is okay. See, this is how Paul starts here in uh, verse 1 of chapter 5. Why, why, why not go back? to the way things were before, because it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Don't go back. We take the gift of being welcomed, adopted into God's family, and that gives us new freedom. Freedom is not doing whatever you want whenever you want to. It doesn't come by pretending that you have it all together or following the sevenfold path or this five answers over here. And it definitely doesn't come by telling God when and where he's going to bless you. It begins in in humility, in admitting we don't have all the answers and we're willing to wait on God to be the one who provides for us. It begins by accepting God's grace. That, that word grace means gift. God's gift in Jesus. That's how we experience the blessing of God's freedom. And I tell you what, it never, never, it usually does not happen in the way that we expect it to. It doesn't happen in the timing that we expect. But that's, those are the boundaries of his freedom. His timing, his will, his way. Now, this doesn't mean that we just we, we get to sit on the couch and wait for God to drop everything into our lap. It means that we exercise our faith in Christ by how we live. We live as though we were a member of his family. And see, here's the thing about family. Family is always a gift. You can be born into a family, and that's a gift because you didn't have anything to do with it. You can be adopted into a family, and even that in and of itself is a gift. You cannot earn your way into the family. But everyone in the family has a responsibility. See, that's the thing that we, we often get backwards. We think, well, if I do these things, if I pray enough, if I'm generous enough, if, if I sacrifice enough, then that will prove I'm part of God's family and he'll accept me and then I'll get to go to heaven when I die. And that's the opposite of what God says. God says, you know what? I have accepted you in Christ. Now go live like that was true. Go be generous and sacrifice and and give 
and serve. Because you know what? That's what the family looks like. The Apostle Paul is urging the Galatians to be reminded of this. He does this also in the book of Romans chapter 4. He says, now the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. You see, if you're not part of the family, then your work is something that you are owed. However, the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. And in Christ, we are new creations in God's family. We don't have to go back to the old way of doing things whatever that was for us, we have a new responsibility. And that responsibility is to live in the spirit by faith, which is the language that Paul uses in chapters five and six. Now, I know when you say that, that's one of those phrases, it's like a religious thing that most people don't understand. You say, how you doing today? Oh, I'm just living in the spirit by faith, brother. People look at you like, are you from Mars? What does that even mean? We're going to see what it means because it's the opposite of doing things on our own the way Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar did. We're going to see in the next couple chapters that it means loving your neighbor as difficult as that may be for some of us. It means rejecting the sinful temptations in our lives because they are the antithesis of trusting God. It means rejecting those sinful desires with love, with joy, with peace, with patience, with kindness, with goodness, with faithfulness, with gentleness, and with self-control. Because all of those are gifts of the Spirit. It means that we help to restore our brothers and sisters who are in habitual sin in their lives, but this is very clear, but to do so gently. And it means carrying each other's burdens like a family does. So we're going to spend the next couple weeks working through that. I hope that you will join us. Let's pray. God, thank you that Christ has done the work of restoring us to you and that you have given us a picture of what it looks like to be a part of your family not to feel like we have to earn it on our own, but to just receive the adoption, the gift of your grace and mercy freely. And Lord, that we would live as people that were a part of your family and generously share the things that you've given us. Father, I know that in my own life, I am often tempted to just do things on my own, to make them happen, and I confess that to you, Lord, and I pray that you would help me to repent from it, all of us to to push aside the desire to figure out things on our own, on our timing, and instead be willing to receive from you whatever you have for us, God. It truly is a gift to be called your children, to be heirs of the inheritance of our Father's kingdom. We thank you, Lord. We pray all glory, all power, all honor to your name. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to continue our worship with our offerings. We have our ushers come forward. We're going to close with a song. And then don't forget, we're snow 
parked out there. So just make sure if you're blocking somebody, you, you move it out so everybody can get home. Have a great Sunday. Thanks for being here, guys.